0: Life and Crimes is brought to you by the subscribers of The Herald Sun. So if you're a subscriber, thank you. Your support helps us create shows like this. And if you're not a subscriber, a subscription to The Herald Sun gives you access to premium articles, including my weekly column, digital versions of the newspaper, and much more. If you like our work and want to sign up, go to heraldsun.com.au slash Andrew Rule one word and click on any article to begin. Ray Bennett knew that he was a marked man. He knew there was a bullet out there with his name on it. I was just about to follow him up there to see what would happen upstairs, you know, what evidence would be led and so on and so forth with my notebook and my pen. When I heard three shots, the guys who wanted to see Ray Bennett dead were one step ahead. I'm Andrew Rule. Welcome to another edition of Life and Crimes. It's the Monday after the Melbourne Cup, 1979. I'm a young reporter on a Melbourne daily newspaper. I'm on the court round and I'm sent up to the old magistrate's court, the Melbourne magistrate's court, which is the grand old building opposite the former Russell Street Police Headquarters. On this day, I'm there mainly to see a very good crook called Raymond Patrick Bennett, also known as Ray Chuck, which was his family name earlier in his life, was Chuck. And his mother later took the name Bennett, and so he carried both names. But most of the underworld knew him as Ray Chuck. And he was very popular with his own followers and friends, and very unpopular with some other people, for reasons that we can go into some other time, but mostly to do with the fact that Ray Chuck was a clever and fairly charismatic crook who was the brains, many people say, behind the great bookie robbery of 1976. And in fact, the success of the bookie robbery led to him falling out with many other members of the underworld and also probably with corrupt members of the old consorting squad, police who used to consort with criminals as part of their duties. The point of all this is that on this day, early November 1979, Ray Bennett, alias Ray Chuck, is appearing in Melbourne Magistrates Court because he has been charged over an armed robbery. Now, this armed robbery was relatively minor compared with some of the big crimes he'd been associated with, and normally a man like Ray Chuck would want bail, but on this occasion Ray Chuck, well, Ray Bennett, didn't want bail. And the reason he didn't want bail was he wanted to be inside behind bars. And the reason he wanted to be inside behind bars was he thought that he would be safer in jail than he would on the street. Now, that is a fairly interesting scenario, but probably a very astute reading of the play because Ray Bennett knew that he was a marked man. He knew there was a bullet out there with his name on it because the previous year, 13 months earlier, In October 1978, Ray Bennett and two of his painter and docker mates had abducted and murdered a prominent underworld figure called Les Kane. Now, Les Kane was one of the most violent men of his generation. He was one of the three Kane brothers. They were standover men, mostly. They were painters and dockers. They were wrought merchants from the waterfront. They were dangerous men in every way, and of the three brothers... Les was by far the most violent. He was feared by most people who knew him. And it was his propensity for making enemies that had led him and his mates to be opposed to Chuck Bennett and his mates. And in fact, what had happened back in 1978 was that Bennett and his friends had launched a preemptive strike. They knew that Kane would come for them if they didn't go for him first. And Kane knew this was on the cards and so he'd moved his family, his wife, Judy and two children, very young children, out from the inner suburbs where he'd always lived to the distant eastern suburbs. I think it might have been a unit that he rented out in Turner or somewhere like that, which was, in 1978, a long way from town. But he thought it was safer than being around Collingwood or Richmond or Port Melbourne. But he was wrong. And what happened back in 1978 was that Les and Judy Kane and their kids had been out to have a Chinese meal, down at the local shops, and they came back home early in the evening. And as they approached the front door of their unit, they realised that their little tiny dash hound, they had a miniature dash hound, was outside, was outside their front door. And they'd left, it dog, they'd left it inside. They thought, that's funny. And not only that, but the dash hound was sitting up on a bench or on a seat that was beside the front door. And later on, Judy realised that that was a giveaway, that the little dog had tiny short legs, and couldn't have jumped up on the seat, that someone must have placed the dog on the seat. But at that point, as they were opening the door with their keys, that didn't really register. It was only later that she thought about it. Of course, even had she thought about it right then, it was probably too late, because inside were three masked men. And the three masked men, without doubt, were Raymond Patrick Bennett, alias Chuck, and his two mates, there might have been a fourth man hidden elsewhere in a car, possibly, a getaway driver. We don't know. But what happened was the masked men, who were known to Judy Kane, she, she knew them of old, even under the masks, she, she knew who they were by their, the shape of their uh, bodies and their heads and all the rest of it. They shoved her and the kids into a room and kept them there, and meanwhile they got Les Kane in the bathroom and shot him to death with automatic weapons and we know he was shot to death because uh, later on judy cleaned up the blood and brain matter left on the floor although she didn't notify the police at that time it was not regarded as etiquette to talk to police in her circles in any case it was too late to help but les kane's body vanished that night And so did his pink Ford Futura car, which was the apple of his eye. It vanished that night too. And probably the body went in the boot and probably the car was either sunk in very deep water somewhere or more likely crushed at a crushing plant with the body in the boot, you would think. But in any case, neither car nor body were ever spotted again. But everyone knew who'd done it. And that is why Ray Bennett was very nervous about being on the streets because he knew the surviving Kane brothers, Brian and Ray Kane and their mates had a price on his head and were after him. And that's why when he turned up to court this day in 1979, he was keen not to oppose bail and he was keen to get stuck straight back inside jail in Pentridge or somewhere like that and stay out of sight, stay off the streets for as long as possible. It was a good plan. Seemed to be a good plan anyway. But the opposition, the guys who wanted to see Ray Bennett dead, were one step ahead. As he was led out of the holding cells at the old magistrate's court, if he'd looked just above the door of the holding cells, he would have seen a piece of brand new graffiti. Scrawled on the wall very recently were these words, Ray Chuck, you will get yours in due course, you fucking dog. And that was probably the last thing Chuck ever read. I was in court when he was led into the dock down at the old court one downstairs, the main court. And he stood there and I studied him because he was the main attraction that day. There he was, he had a face like a sort of a handsome boxer, nose bent up a bit, cheekbones a bit scarred, uh, had the hard, dead eyes, but a sort of handsome bloke in a rough, tough-looking way in his early 30s. He had on a very loud check tweed jacket with leather patches on the elbows. Looked like a you know a jackaroo going to the picnic races, but his face was that of the tough guy. The police led him through the dock at court one and led him upstairs to I think it was I think it was caught maybe court twelve or court seven or something upstairs. It was a smaller court, up a couple of flights of stairs. And I was just about to follow him up there to see what would happen upstairs, you know, the, what evidence would be led and so on and so forth with my notebook and my pen. When I heard three shots, now I knew these were shots because if it had been a car backfiring out in Russell Street, it would only backfire probably once, maybe twice. But these were three reports and I had enough experience with guns to realise that was a gun and it wasn't, it wasn't a twenty-two. it was some, something a bit bigger. I made a rush for the door to get out. By this stage, one of the police on court duty, a sergeant, blocked the door and stopped anybody getting out. It was, of course, a couple of decades before mobile telephones, and so there was not many ways of communicating with the outside world that something dramatic was happening at court. I headed from the front door where the sergeant was blocking it back to the clerk of the court's desk where there was a telephone and tried to hijack the telephone Which I was able to get hold of the phone because the clerk of the court at the time was a young fellow called Bernie Barmer, who later became a very prominent criminal lawyer, now known as Bernie the Attorney. In those days, he was this young Bernie Barmer, the, the clerk of courts, and he let me use the phone and I rang the newspaper I then worked for, which of course was not nearly as sharp as the Herald Sun, because the newspaper I then worked for, I couldn't get through to the pictorial department in time to get a photographer sent up. And so I think that photographer didn't make it, but some others did. By this time, I didn't know it, but by this time it had transpired that um, Ray Bennett had been shot and that he'd been taken to St Vincent's Hospital and in fact he died on the operating table. It was only in the ensuing hour or two that we were able to put together the exact story of what happened. And one of the reasons we know exactly what happened was that a reporter called Julie Heard, who was then working for the Sun newspaper, the forerunner of the Herald Sun, had been sitting upstairs outside the upstairs court where Bennett was due to appear and she'd just been waiting there uh, patiently with her notebook and pens. And nearby, on a seat near her, was a man wearing a suit. Now this guy just looked like some sort of no-name anonymous solicitor. He had a average size, he had a blue suit, he had a beard and he had gold rimmed glasses so he, he, he could have been any sort of middle aged solicitor from anywhere uh, at, a, at a glance that is but when Ray Bennett was led upstairs by the two detectives to go to court suddenly this apparent harmless solicitor leapt to his feet, produces a pistol from inside his coat pocket points it at Bennett and says, cop this, you motherfucker, and shoots him. Now, meanwhile, the, the police escorts have been quite stunned. One of them went to move towards the shooter because the police actually assumed for a split second that it was a hoax, that it was blank shots, and that it was an elaborate escape attempt. Because when he was shot, Bennett, running on adrenaline, despite the fact he had three bullets in him, in his chest mostly, adrenaline carried him and he turned around and ran down the flight of stairs. He'd just come up and the police did assume that it was an escape attempt and one moved towards the shooter and the shooter turned to him and said, don't make me do it. And the policeman then took pause, you know, which was wise. He was unarmed, the policeman, and at what point was there tackling an armed man? So the police pursue the wounded Bennett, who in fact collapses on a uh, landing further down, and uh, clearly he's dying. And his last words were, I've been hit in the heart, or I've been shot in the heart, which is probably true. But he did officially die on the operating table a little later, but he was, he was doomed. Now, what happened in the meantime is quite interesting. The shooter has bolted over towards a door. Now, this old court building was a labyrinth, it had corridors, it had old fire escape stairs, it had all sorts of things that had been added to and added to over a century. So it was a great maze of messy rooms and additions and back passages and flights of stairs and all sorts of things. And unless you knew your way around it really well, such as, you know, if you were a cleaner or something, you'd find it hard to find your way out the back of this place because the public didn't use the back entries. Anyway, our shooter knew all about where to go. and went through you know, this door and then down that passage and then out through another door and down a flight of external steps and then out into a little gravel courtyard out the back which had a tin shed at the back of it, which was where magistrates used to park their cars. And this is the magistrates' car park. Little old joint. Probably a converted stable because our whole place is this old Victorian building. And so everything had been converted from the horse and buggy days. And the magistrate's car park, the building on it is this corrugated iron shed, essentially. And our shooter has bolted down all this rabbit warren and out into this car park and into this tin shed. And at the back of the tin shed, you wouldn't believe it, there's a piece of corrugated iron bent up like a piece of cardboard. It's been bent up well ahead of time, and it's bent up about a metre so that a man can jump out underneath it. And if you jump out underneath it, you land in the RMIT car park, which in those days was at the back of the court. And, of course, the RMIT car park is a vast space full of cars and people and all sorts of things, and that's where the shooter vanished. Now, many years later, I was told exactly what happened. It was widely suspected by most people, that the shooter was in fact the dead Les Cain's older brother, Brian Cain, who was a well-known standover man, a fairly popular figure in his way. It's certain that it was Brian Cain, that he'd grown a beard and and disguised himself and and organised this. But there's no doubt that Brian Cain had the cooperation of certain rogue elements in the police force, that someone has helped set up the escape route, someone's bent up the, the corrugated iron and so on and so forth. And I was told many years later by a uh, female member of the Kane family that it was Brian, and that Brian jumped into the car park where his brother Ray was waiting for him in a vehicle, and they drove straight to Tullamarine Airport and caught a flight to Perth. And that's where they cooled off. They had a, a holiday in Perth for a while and let things settle down in Melbourne. Of course, it was a massive story. It was one of the biggest stories I've ever seen at that stage of the game and probably that shooting helped usher in an era when we had metal detectors installed in courts because clearly it was easy for the shooter in this case to take a a weapon in and I think a lot of the court security that later came in was due to that incident because it illustrated just how easy it was in an Australian city for something to happen the way you might have imagined it happening in Dodge City in the time of Wyatt Earp in the uh, 1800s. It was very uh, Wild West stuff. And in some respects, it was a very Wild West era. But that story made me very interested in the doings of Raymond Patrick Bennett, alias Chuck, And he was an interesting underworld figure. It turns out that he grew up, I believe, in the small town of Chilton in the uh, northeast of Victoria, up near the border. And Chilton was also the home of Barry Cassidy, the uh, ABC journalist. And briefly, it was the home of Mr Stinky, the rapist and murderer. And it was many years later in the 1980s, I was researching a book on the activities of Mr Stinky and I went to Chilton and I met an old bloke in a pub there who knew everything that happened locally and he pointed out a particular house to me a fairly rough, ordinary house and he said, see that house, son? I said, yep. He said, guess who used to live there? And I said, well, I suppose you're going to tell me Mr Stinky lived there as a kid. And he said, yeah, he did. Mr Stinky lived there as a kid. His parents rented that house back in whatever era and he said, you know who lived there before him? I said, who? He said, Ray Chuck. So the one house in Chiltern, Victoria, a small town in rural Victoria, one house in one street, produced two notorious children. One was one of the most prolific rapists and a notorious killer, that is Mr Stinky, and the other was Raymond Patrick Chuck, alias Bennett, the great bookie robber. And that's the story of the feud between the Kane brothers and Raymond Patrick Bennett, alias Chuck, that led to Bennett being shot dead in the Melbourne Magistrates Court, while Brian Kane, the gunman, going on the run. But all feuds have a beginning, and we'll find out about that in our next episode. Thanks to you, our listeners, our podcasts are going really well. But we'd like them to go... Even better. And that's why we'd like you to please subscribe and please review it on whatever platform you're using. See you later. My name is Manny Caroudis and I'm a former New South Wales policeman turned investigative reporter with a passion for missing persons cases. I'm here to quickly tell you about our True Crime Australia podcast, The Missing. In this series, I look at old missing persons cases which have all gone cold in an attempt to try and uncover new information which could help see these missing people reunited with their loved ones or any form of clue that could bring these families closure. The Missing is available now wherever you get your podcasts and early and ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts.